technology is a tool, but for a lot of people, it's become the thing, right? It should be a tool that helps you to connect with whatever the thing is. Like Facebook shouldn't be the thing that you care about. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. This is episode number 46, and I am, as always, uh, your chief recovering hypocrite on these parts, uh, Noel Jesse Hakenen. And today, the topic that we're hitting, gosh, I feel like both a hypocrite in this area and uh, someone who needs recovery in this area, so it definitely is a good one for us today. Today, we are going to talk about technology, and we're going to talk about technology and its intersection with our spiritual life. And the guy that I have as a guest is a guy that I first discovered online. I was reading all of his articles online that he would write about technology and life, and he's an Apple fanatic like I am. And over time, I began to realize that this guy and I followed each other on Twitter. And I was like, oh, that's wild. I followed this guy. And then I discovered that he is from Lansing, the city that I live in. And then I found out that he actually goes to Riverview, the church where I serve as one of the pastors. And so we have have um, connected mostly online over our love of tech, our love of Apple, and our, our love of Jesus, and uh, just being Christians trying to figure out how to use tech in our lives. And the reason I decided to do this episode this week is I uh, just opened up my Apple News feed, and there uh, at the top was an article in, uh, talking about how Steve Jobs never turned off his iPhone except for one good reason and why we should follow Steve Jobs' advice. And I was reading this article, and I was like, man, this is a very almost like like a Christian approach to technology. And then I realized, of course, Jason was the author. And so I just texted Jason and said, hey, we got to talk about this. And so what I want to do today is talk about how do we think about technology when we have such a digitally integrated Life and what I mean by that is there's no way we will ever separate our lives out any longer. We're we're digitally integrated. We we unless there's some kind of zombie apocalypse, technology is going to be part of our lives. And so, how do we think about technology uh, as a follower of Jesus? And so, I'm really excited uh, to get into this interview with Jason uh, to talk about uh, technology and our spiritual lives. I always start out these podcasts with three publicly available pieces of information about somebody, followed by three pieces of information people may not know. And so here's the three things about Jason, other than what I've already covered in the intro today. First, you are a tech writer for both Inc. Magazine and Business Insider Magazine. Second, you're the host of 29 Steps Podcast, which talks about the intersection between remote work, tech, and life. And I'm just going to press pause for a second. Why is it called 29 Steps? I know I should know this, but I don't know this. So that's a great question. And it is one that we get asked a lot. People think it's like a recovery podcast. Like we just decided to reinvent the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe it is. There's 12 or not enough. Right. I need some extra work. <laughs> but in reality, it's the distance from my bedroom to my office is 29 Steps. So it's my morning commute. There's no way I, I think I could have known that. So that's great. You're the host of 29 Steps podcast. And you are a sound guy at our West Side venue at Riff, which I didn't know until you hollered at me and introduced yourself from the sound booth. Sure. Well, and the funny so, part about that one is I, I got recruited to do the presentation stuff first, but I have a lot of music background. And so they were like, we need people who know something about sound. Would you also be willing to push the button now that we've gone back to in-person? So I've actually only done that part of it for like three months now. So Here's what's wild. 
Over the course of COVID, a little insider baseball here, we have lost more sound techs than almost any other volunteer position in our church. I'm glad you're serving in that way. So give me the three things that people may not know about you, little known facts about Jason. All right. So I think I I, I had listened to your podcast, so I knew this was coming. And then I also knew because you were gracious enough to tell me this piece, which was nice. This is a good question to know in advance. <laughs> so I asked my wife, right? Because I thought, what are some things that are little known or unknown, but are also interesting? And so the first one she reminded me of is that I have been on, over the course of the last, whatever, almost 30 years, about 24 short-term mission trips. So, wow. So that's an I feel like that's interesting and most people would have no idea, right? That that was a thing. It is. Where's the where's the farthest away that you've you've been? Uh like Costa Rica. Like distance wise. Costa Rica would be the farthest. Okay. How's your Spanish? Um I actually took Spanish in high school and in college. It's probably not as great now, although I'm going to Spain in two months, so I'm actually gonna have to get back to, to but uh, I was I mean, I would have considered myself conversationally fluent at the time. That's awesome. Okay, so we've got one. The second one I would say (laughs) is that most people probably don't know is I started playing the piano when I was about three and a half years old. Just we'd come home from church. I'd start plunking out like the hymns. I think the first song I actually learned was Jeopardy because my grandparents had a piano (laughs) and they would watch Jeopardy and then I would sit down and I'd play the theme song for it. So that's the second thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then I think the third that most people, this is one that for sure no one would really know is that I'm I'm deeply introverted, which is surprising for a lot of people for I think a couple of reasons. One, I've done a lot of public speaking and I was a worship leader. People would see you up front and they assume you're outgoing, which I am, but it's not the same thing, right? I love people. Right. Right. I enjoy being around people, but it's exhausting. Right. And I live in a house, we have four kids, so every day is exhausting. Actually, this is the best time of day because they all got on the bus and it's like me time right and so most people wouldn't assume that because they see somebody who's really outgoing but at the same time it i'm very very introverted i want to kind of take a cue from your podcast your podcast at at 29 steps you talk about the intersection between remote work tech and life and what i really want to talk about today is the intersection between tech and spiritual life and so i think it would help if people heard a little bit of your faith story first, like, like just give us a little, just kind of the big bullet points of your faith story. Yeah. So I grew up in the church and in fact, the church that I spent most of my life at is the church that met in the building that eventually became the West side venue. Right. So I grew up at, oh, wow. at Trinity. Yeah. Right? That's where I met my wife, started attending there. And at the time when we started attending that church, I think it was in eighth grade, they used to have a youth service it was called lansing area youth rock and so there was lots of people that come on sunday mornings like young people it was a church that was really focused at the time on on young people and as a result there were quite a few people from like youth for christ and campus life who attended the church and they got me connected that's actually the first mission trip i ever went on was with youth for christ we went to miami after hurricane andrew and so that's kind of like where my you know, we had attended church before that. My parents had always taken us to church, but that was really where it was sort of a thing that started to make sense to me. I started to feel like, oh, this is church for people who are like me, not just I'm attending my mm. parents' church. And so, so, so you grew up in a church environment. What is your earliest tech memory? Have you always been a techie or is that something that you just eventually just fell into? Yeah, that's a good question. I had a friend in, our, in the neighborhood we lived in. He actually lived behind us and they had a classic Mac. It was probably an SE or an SE30 if I had 
based on the time. And I was jealous. It was, it was nothing like I've seen before. We didn't have a computer at that time. We later got a computer. It was not a Mac. It was a Packard Bell, you know, ran MS-DOS, whatever. But I was always jealous of that little Mac that he had. And it really just kind of made me curious about the thing. I mean, there was no internet back then. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to right. date myself, but there was, it was such a different way of experiencing things. And when I was in high school, it was about the time that the internet became a thing. And it was, it was, I was always exploring and always trying to figure out, and there wasn't that much to explore at the time, but it wasn't until I was in college and I had a guy who lived down the hall from us in our dorm and he got one of the very first IMAX. And I thought, mm. okay, now I have to, I have to, I have to have something that, that is so cool. I couldn't afford one at the time, but it was, right. it was oh, those were like three yeah, grand. It wasn't until right? like, like yeah. two or three years later, I bought my first Mac. I bought a power book and the only reason I bought it was I wanted to edit video, right? I wanted to use final cut. I wanted oh. to do that, but I've always been really curious. Sometimes my curiosity towards tech has gotten me in trouble. I remember my parents will probably, my mom will probably listen to this, but that's fine. If I tell her I was on a podcast with Pastor Noel, she's going to listen to it. But I remember when I was in, I must've been in middle school still because I couldn't drive. So I was probably 13 or 14. And I walked to Staples because I had seen a friend at school or someone at school who had a pager and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Okay. Oh, so at like yeah. 14 years old, I walked, some people who are listening are like pager. Like that's what doctor, like no one has a pager. Literally no one has, well, we all have pagers. We just call them iPhones. But I walked to Staples and I bought a pager and by bought, I'm pretty sure it was probably free when you sign a contract. And so at like 13 or 14 years old, I signed, you know, all or whatever it was at the time, a contract. But the weird thing is I couldn't tell anyone I had a pager because my parents would shoot me if they found out I went and bought a pager <laughs> and signed a contract for service. And so I would, the only person, the only time I'd ever get a page is if I picked up the landline in our house and paged myself because I thought it was cool. Oh, that's hilarious. It's pathetic. So you were paying the, a contract to text yourself. So here's the, well, it's pathetic is yourself. the word you meant, <laughs> but, but I, I don't know for sure how my dad found out, but I'm pr pretty sure it was probably because a bill showed up in the mail one day and he's like, why Jason, do you have a bill for a pager service? And the jig was up and he literally took me back to Staples and my dad, even though he was a army, he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the national guard like army guy very matter of fact i never heard him yell but he was mad and he was m almost as mad at the people who let me sign a he's, he's not even 18 he, you can't have a guy sign a contract for this thing i don't fully know how it all resolved except for i was very embarrassed standing at staples with my dad having to basically get me out of this situation and so sometimes my curiosity for tech has gotten me in trouble. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> well, uh, just even just that story. So for a lot of people younger than you and I, and I think you're younger than me based on that description. I'm a Gen Xer. I'll be, I'll be 50 this year. My generation, and it sounds like the edge of your generation there, our experience with tech was non-immersive, right? So my first computer was a Commodore VIC-20. And I would program in basic and sit in my house, program in basic. And then my typing teacher in high school got assigned to be the computer instructor because she was the typing teacher, but she'd never used a computer. So there were a couple of us who, who had been doing some basic programming. We started kind of almost like being high school TAs, helping there. And then my parents got a Tandy, if you remember yeah. those made by Radio Shack. Yeah. And then it was when I was at Michigan State as a freshman, and so I'll date myself, that was the fall of 89. 
when I went into the computer labs and they had Macs and there were bulletin board systems and chat systems where you could talk to people. But to use them, because I didn't have a computer, I had to get on my bike, I had to ride across campus, I had to go to the computer building because there were not computer labs in all the dorms. And so the whole experience was a lot like going to the movies was before, where if you wanted to see a movie, you had to go to the movie theater or you had to go rent a, a go to Blockbuster or something. But now that is a foreign concept from the time they're born practically. Generations now are completely immersed in tech. And so I wonder if like if there's, you know, people talk about being a digital native versus being a digital immigrant. I'm a digital immigrant, and I think I'm pretty fluent, and you're a little bit more of a native, but my kids are complete digital natives. Right. Yeah. And I, I was like about as young as you can possibly be and still be in Gen X, right? Like just 79. And so I think you're right because we... It happened early enough in our life that it that it feels it felt normal by the time I was in college. I didn't have a computer when I started college. We were still using like these dial-up terminals, and there was like one on every floor. But by the time I was out of college, everybody had a computer, right? And I think between 1997 and 2000, so I started college in 1997, the household population which had access to the internet went from like less than 20% to like half. So I grew up right on that edge. But I think you're right because when I look at my kids especially my youngest who's six, he's literally never experienced life without a smart speaker and an iPad and a phone. And like those are, we've never had a landline phone in this house, right? To them, a phone is a thing you carry in your pocket, right? It's not a thing you use to make phone calls, <laughs> right? Well, my daughter, uh, Emma, we loved the name Noel and we had kicked around, not super seriously, but how much it would be nice to have a daughter named Noel. But then we thought, oh, that'll be confusing. People will call the home phone and they'll ask for Noel or Noel. We won't know who to give the phone to. <laughs> we eliminated a name for our child because we couldn't imagine a world that didn't have a home phone. Right, right, right. It, it, and nowadays, like I said, since we've been married, I don't think we've, we've been married 13 years. I don't think we've ever had a home phone. Not once. Yeah. So do you have any recollection of the first time in your life where you saw a connection or a disconnection between digital life and spiritual life. Like I, I think that a lot of times we, as Gen Xers and boomers, we tend to think of digital devices and spaces as add-ons to our life and, and not fully integrated. But there are moments where we see them kind of bump into each other and clash. Do you have a, an early recollection of when you saw those two things connect? Yeah, I think, so I'm going to relate it back to those mission trips that we talked about. I think, so it was 1998, probably I was in college and I was volunteering at a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we were taking a group of 35 high school kids to Reynosa, Mexico. Okay. And the thing about mission trips is that inevitably in between all of the fun things that you get to do, like building a roof and putting up walls, playing with the kids at a vacation Bible school, someone is going to spend a lot of time painting. And I hate painting. Right? I just, I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but I just am not a fan of painting. Now, we used to take this Sony Mavica. I don't know if you remember those, but you stuck a three and a half inch floppy disk into them. So they were big, giant things. They were like 640 by 480 was the image quality. Just for comparison, your iPhone is 12 megapixels. It's like 4,000 by 3,000. 
you could take six of the photos from the Mavica and, and line them up as a grid on your iPhone screen and they'd be full resolution. That's how small the pictures were on this thing. So we used, wow. we used to take okay. one of those and I figured out very quickly that if you were the guy walking around with the camera, then no one would ask you why you weren't painting. And so I became a photographer, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's true. Now, this was also at the same time I already mentioned that, right, the change in people being able to access the internet was happening at the same roughly the same time frame, And that was a big deal because one of the problems that we would notice is that when students went on a mission trip, they had a hard time communicating with their family back home about the experience that they'd had, right? It's really hard to tell someone about a mountaintop experience if they aren't there with you on the mountaintop. And that's a problem because whenever a kid went on a mission trip, there was really this whole extended group of people that were also involved in making it happen, right? There's a kid who goes there's their family and their friends who are praying for them. And then there's also probably a half dozen or so people who are also financially supporting them, right? Our, the kids would always write support letters to raise funds and people would pray for them. And all these people would go. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but 15 year old boys are not very good about coming home and talking about their experiences with all of these people who helped them to make it possible. And it turns out that technology can help with that. And, and photos in particular have a really powerful way of telling stories. And so I would capture photos on a stack of three and a half inch floppy disks. And then at night, I would connect to a dial up phone line and I would email the photos back to a volunteer in Indiana who would then put them up on an iWeb, right? Apple used to have this like website, uh-huh, uh-huh. iWeb website. It would probably take two hours to send 30 or 40 photos, right? I even remember doing this one time on a trip to West Virginia. We would go to like Appalachia. Actually, the town was called Philippi. And we would literally drive 40 minutes down a mountain, spend two hours on a dial-up AOL connection, and then drive 40 minutes back just so we could send those photos. And, And what would happen is that when the kids would come home, their parents already knew, right? They saw the experience sort of. And 30 to 40 photos is nothing compared to like we take a thousand a day nowadays. But it was a really big deal and it was worth it because like for me, it was what clicked in, in terms of technology is a tool to do these things that you couldn't do otherwise, right? That you could communicate in ways you just couldn't before. It's interesting. Just even that phrase, technology is a tool. I wonder how much our generation is the dividing line between people who think about technology as a tool and those who think about it as a fully integrated piece of their life. So like the descriptions you just gave there, those resonate with me. I was a youth pastor back in those days, and we would do the same thing. We would take these youth trips, and by posting pictures online, and I think I used iWeb too. And I think you and I might be the only two people I know that actually still have a Mac.com address and so that we're holding on to. And I think that our generation saw technology as a tool, and it was a tool. But now, like you said, it is an instantaneous part of life. It's no longer just a tool. And so a kid that goes on a mission trip is likely to snap some pictures. And by that, I don't mean take pictures. That's what our generation would say. But using Snapchat, they will you know, do an Instagram story. All of that will happen as part of that trip. And it's just a natural expression of their life. Yeah. And I just want to say real quickly, you want to know the best thing is to walk into an Apple store and have them email you a receipt to a dot Mac email address because the 27 year old kid that works there is jealous because you can't get one of those anymore. So I have held oh, yeah. on to it for that yeah. reason. But I think you're right in the sense that 
technology is a tool, but for a lot of people, it's become the thing, right? It should be a tool that helps you to connect with whatever the thing is. Like Facebook shouldn't be the thing that you care about. Facebook should be a tool. Hypothetically, like I'm making an example. I'm not advocating for Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah should yeah, be yeah, the yeah. thing yeah. you use, the tool you use to stay connected with people you care about. You really shouldn't. It should be transparent. You shouldn't care about Facebook. You should just. It should be the tool that lets you do that. But for a lot of people, I think you're right. And for the people that you're talking about, it's not even Facebook anymore, right? It's TikTok or Instagram or whatever. I think the key word you just used, whether you intended to use it this way or not, is transparent. If, if Christians in particular and church leaders have not figured out how to make technology transparent, and that's our problem, our use of technology is so opaque and so in your face. And so it's almost like the big conversation in church circles right now amongst pastors is this idea of whether online presence that we've have been forced to create over the next year needs to become its own space. Like should Riverview that has four venues now have a fifth venue, which is an online venue, becomes a tacked on opaque piece of ministry versus thinking about our online presence as a transparent space that people move in and out of through their life as part of their normal church experience, but it's not opaque i guess that's the, the word when you said transparent that's what struck me i i was reading an article that said said you go on a dating profile and use a, a dating app to meet somebody but you don't stay online you then end up in a physical space with that person and then you text them on your way there you log into the brewing company to make sure that they're open on your phone. And then you get there and then you talk to each other and then you keep texting one another and there's a transparency to the whole thing. Right. And I think churches have treated digital spaces as very opaque. Yeah. As if they're the and destination. That makes it jarring. Yeah. As if they're the destination. As, yes. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm missing. That's what I was missing. Yes. As if it's, it itself is the destination versus a transparent part of the experience of being part of a church family. Yeah. It's kind of like to use a weird tech example. It's like the difference. If you use PayPal, you like go to PayPal, right? You log into your PayPal account. To, if I wanted to send you money and I just send you some money and, but I, it, but PayPal sends me the receipt, you get a notification from PayPal. It's very PayPal as opposed to if I use Stripe on my website to take a payment, right there, it's invisible. You don't, you never know you use Stripe. Stripe doesn't care if anyone knows the name Stripe right outside of investors or shareholders or whatever but it's just, it, you just come to Jason's website or Noel's website and you use Stripe and it it processes your credit card but you don't get an email from Stripe you get an email from Noel right like it, it, it's right. transparent right. as opposed to with PayPal right. it's like nope you used PayPal <laughs> right it's a thing and they want you to know i just wonder if old guys like us need to start handing the digital reins or maybe all the reins to younger people and let them play in the digital spaces and just sit back and marvel at how they do it. I, I just don't know that it's going to be worth the energy of explaining to old people like us what they're doing. Well, and I, I feel like early on, I don't know where it came from, but I feel like early on, I heard early on in the pandemic, I heard somebody who was either a church leader or a pastor who, who talked about how churches have spent decades, centuries, raising hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to build a space that a couple hundred people will come to. Right. And now for about 
$1,000, you can buy the equipment and host your service on YouTube where a billion, you know, 7 billion people could come. Like which one of those two things right. is a better, you know, equation there, the value, the value equation, but it requires a shift in the way that we think about both things, both technology and church. Right. And so, so that, and that raises the theological question of what is kind of, to, I'm going to use a real churchy term, but it makes, what is your minimum ecclesiology? In other words, what is the minimum thing that you need to have church? And that's the debate happening in a lot of circles right now with pastors. And that is, do we need to be physically present with one another? And some assume yes, others assume no, and they're not talking to each other. And that's part of the big conversation that needs to happen. I mean, if you think about it, people, churches, businesses, tech, all of these things, everything has corresponding strengths and weaknesses. The very things that makes them strong is what makes them weak. And that's us as individuals, like my gifting and your gifting, it makes us simultaneously strong and weak. And I think technology does that too. So I just, it's interesting to try to think about even what are the dangers, the kind of the, the digital dangers that we're just going to have to figure out how to live with and deal with. I mean, have you thought about any of those as how those relate to spiritual life? I think the obvious answer, right, and there's more to it, but I think the obvious answer is like, like anything, too much of something good can become quickly something very bad, right? Like that's, that's true in a lot of things, but I, I don't necessarily think that that's a reason that people should avoid technology. And when I say that, like you can't avoid technology, let's just be clear. It's just, it, because it starts to creep into spaces you didn't think about as technology. I can turn off my iPhone for a day, but I'm still going to sit down on my iPad. Like anyway, or my lights. If I want to turn the lights on in my house, I have to use technology. Like that's just the way that it is because otherwise it's going to be really dark in here. But I, I think this last year has been a good, good example, right? Every single Sunday morning, the six of us and our family would sit down in the living room and we would turn on church. And, you know, we sort of have this routine where once church is over, our kids are huge music fans. And so, right, church is on YouTube. So we would just go through like four or five YouTube music videos. Our kids love it. It's like the best part of church. And I'm so thankful that they will remember that. And, but also, there's six of us. We're big enough to have like our own small group, <laughs> right? Our own little church. But the other thing is like it's YouTube, which it doesn't get any more tech than YouTube. And I think that leads back to what your question is. Technology makes it possible to access almost anything. And unfortunately for humans who are notoriously bad at creating boundaries, it can also be a very bad thing, not just because technology can become the thing like we talked about, but also it can lead you to places that you didn't intend to go. And we see stories of this, of the aftermath, especially it can be kind of jarring when you hear about it from people you know in the church, right? Marriages ruined by affairs that were started with a Facebook message. I was in a restaurant years ago with a group of people, Texas de Brazil. I don't know if you've ever been to one. It's a churrascaria and it's amazing. You walk in, it's like a fixed price place and you go in, they have a salad bar and it has like 150 things like fresh mozzarella, like a lot of stuff. And then when you sit down, there's a coaster on your place and it's, it's red. And on the other side, it's green. Okay. So you go up. So like a Brazilian steakhouse. Yeah, it is a Brazilian steakhouse. Yeah. 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 And so when you, when you sit, I, the first thing someone told me was like, go up to the, uh, salad bar, but like, don't, don't try everything, but you want to try everything because it's like so good and there's, it's so easy to get to and it's all right in front of you. But, but the point was 
there's more and the good stuff is coming, right? So don't fill up on the salad bar. When you're ready, you turn the coaster over and now it's green. And these guys with swords walk around and they cut off pieces of, you know, top sirloin and flaming mignon and pork tenderloin and lamb. And just, it's insane. And they won't stop until you flip the coaster back to red. You have to decide as a person, but it is so easy to just eat way more than you thought because there's no friction. They just bring it to you. And you actually mentioned this early on about how to use a computer when you were in college, you had to bike across campus. There was a lot of friction involved in doing that. And today there's zero friction. Like there is literally zero friction. And in some ways that's great, especially over the past year. Zoom is a perfect example. Last year, one of the most popular articles I wrote was about how overnight Zoom became the most important business tool in the world. And not just for the business world, because it meant you could have a birthday party with grandma without grandma having to worry about get, getting COVID. And she didn't have to know anything about video conferencing. It's like, grandma, just click the link. Like, that's literally all you gotta do is just click on the link and we're on a Zoom. But the, the problem with not having any friction can be devastating, right? I, I, I would mm-hmm. never cheat on my wife, but it's so easy to just download an app or send somebody a message. Or I, I'd never say this to that person in real life, but man, is it easy to send the tweet, right? Or I would never be caught dead in an adult bookstore because somebody might notice me but there's so much more that's easily accessible in the privacy of your own home because there's no friction. And so I think that that's absolutely true. And I think that that's taking tech out of the realm of being a tool and turning it into like the thing, like the pursuit of the thing, like what it is. Does that make sense? It it does. It's interesting too. You mentioned uh, even the services being on YouTube and one of the, you know, and the zero friction from one thing to another. There's always at the end of the YouTube videos, a bunch of suggested videos that pop up. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been watching church with my family in our living room and the video that pops up next, I'm like, no, 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 please don't feed this particular (laughs) video out to everybody. There was a book, I think it's called Gen Z, but the book was about the fact that we, because we have access to endless amounts of information right now, the most pressing need we have is no longer access to information, which is what it was when I was a kid. It is now mentorship and help sorting through and filtering the information. Because I can't tell you the number of people come up to me after a service they don't like what I preached, and they can tell me three people they saw on YouTube that agree with them. And so before they've even left the auditorium, they have Googled to see if they can find a team, a tribe that agrees with them. And you can find a team or a tribe that agrees with you on everything. Without exaggeration, I get seven to 60 articles or videos or books sent to me a week, and everything has an equal voice. Well, and if you think about it, when you started in ministry, I don't specifically know when that was, but let's say it was 20 years ago, no one could send you that stuff. They'd have to show up on your porch and that would be weird. So almost no one would do that. Somebody might, but again, we would all agree it would be weird, but it's really easy to slide into your DMs or to send you an email or to to whatever, right? (laughs) Hey, true, true story. I got a sermon complaint in record time. This week, like someone had to have their, they had to have their complaint written before I was done preaching. There's just no way they could have got, it popped up on my phone and I thought, you know, I, I told my wife, I, I read it to her and then I said, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to not 
look at any email or any of these direct messages until Tuesday. <laughs> and I think that that's part of how we have to deal with technology now is we have to, like you said, we have to create friction. I love that terminology. We have to create friction for technology. Otherwise, it will slide into every space of our lives unencumbered. I think for me, a lot of the stuff that I've done just, I've had to figure out ways to create friction. So like I use inbox pause on Gmail, which if you don't use that, it's glorious. I have to physically go in and flip the card over to use your analogy to actually to unpause my email to have it come in. It won't go to any of my devices. And so on weekends when I'm teaching, I pause my email through the weekend and through the first day of the week, Monday, so that I don't see any emails until Tuesday. I have to create friction. Yeah. And you know, there's another one that's a browser extension called pause and it won't make it so you can't, but what it does is it blocks the site for like five seconds so that you can like decide, did I really want to go down the Twitter rabbit oh. hole? Because there are legit times when, okay, I want to post about my article on Twitter or whatever. But the point is there's just enough friction there that it's like, I have to be intentional about this because there's enough of an inconvenience that if I wasn't being intentional and it just happened, it's like, oh yeah, I, I need to finish this article. I can't, I don't have time for Twitter right now or YouTube or whatever it might be. And it comes with a list of predetermined things, but you can add whatever you want, right? You can, you know what? eBay is my addiction and I don't want to go to eBay while I'm trying to work. So put eBay in there or whatever it might be. But I, I agree with you. And I think about the way you create friction is you set boundaries, right? And I, mm. I love this. <laughs> I have these conversations because like you, I get a lot of email. And I can, so like, I, I consider it fortunate. I get to write for a great publication and occasionally my stories will go viral, right? And they'll show up in Apple news and the trending stories. And the way I can always tell that a story is in the top trending stories is the number, the amount of email I start getting very early in the morning from people, oh, from people yeah. who are like, and actually the most email comes from people who are like, you know, you spelled this word wrong. And I'm like, I'm not the, yep. I'm not even the editor, oh, so yeah. whatever, but, it, oh, yeah. but my wife is like, you can't, you just got to ignore it. And I do, I have to create a boundary. And that just says, I'm not going to let you live in my head rent free this. You're not it, like, you're not my editor. So I don't honestly, it, I can't care what you think right now. I mean, it's good to make sure like sometimes Jeff Bezos said this once he said, when you're being criticized, first thing, decide if they're right. And if they are change, and if they're not ignore them because your critics are never the people who are going to give you money. So why are you spending any energy like caring about those people? Right? So focus on, on what really matters, but you have to create boundaries. You know, I use this, I use the sleep feature on my watch and on my phone and I tell people about it. I'm like, this is amazing because my phone, it won't give me notifications after a certain time. There's some friction. I have to like swipe and dismiss the thing before I can actually use my phone 45 minutes before bed. And I'll hear like, I'll tell this to people and they're like, I'm, I'm a grown man. I don't need my phone telling me what to do. And my point is your phone's not telling you what to do. You decided what to do. Your phone is just helping you keep that promise to yourself, right? This tool is just helping you to do that because here's the thing. You won't do it. Otherwise. <laughs> like you have to create some kind of a boundary that says, I can't do this right now. I need, I need some space. I need to put technology away and I'm not mature enough as a human being to do it on my own. So it's really nice to have a tool that'll help me with that. You know, I was really blown away when Apple actually added the whole feature that can track the amount of time that you spend on different apps. Yeah. That was a corporate maturity is what that was. Because I, I do think we need to see where the time suck lives because we need, I think we all need time where we can, 
I, I hate to use the word, it's, it feels overused, but unplug. And like every year, one of my rhythms is I take a social media fast in July. And what I, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't even know how long, but I interact with no social media, almost no email. I have my assistant check all my email and let me know if anything is really super pressing. I don't read news feeds and I literally delete all of the apps off my phone to make my phone into a dumb phone. And every year it's different for me. Every there's, I, I have a different emotional experience and spiritual experience with the lack of a device, but every year it's healthy. I think for a lot of people, not to get too meta about it, but I think there's a direct relationship to spirituality here in that like we think about spiritual practices, right? Or spiritual disciplines. And what does that mean? It's a, it has to become a habit for you, right? Like, so if you, if you want to spend more time, I love the version Bible app on my phone, for example. And part of the reason I love it is that when I open it, it tells me what my current streak of days. And right now that streak, honestly, is at like 1027, right? Just, and so here's what that does. Super cool. What that does for me though, is like, I don't want to break the streak. It's gamified. I don't want to break the streak because how, how stupid would I feel if all of a sudden it went back to one, but over the course of 1,027 days, it has just become a habit for me to open that app. Not because I care anymore about the streak, but because I've done it every day for that's like almost three years. Right. So, so it has helped create a habit for me. You mentioned at a service, I don't remember when a long time ago, but it's the echo prayer app. Right. And so, yes. Yeah. And so yeah. every day, in fact, it happened just before we got on this podcast because our kids got on the bus, it pops up and says, pray for your kids. Cause it's the time they should be getting off the bus at school. Again, the point is it creates a habit. So our daughters are 10 and 12 and last year in like May, we got them both iPhones because right. It's been a rough year. We hadn't left our house in three months at that point. <laughs> We got them phones. <laughs> no judgment. We, it's a judgment-free zone, we, man. Well, and we got them phones because like our daughter, one of our daughters is a gymnast. She spends 17 hours a week at the gym. So it's nice for us to know she has a phone. Our other daughter was running cross country and going to soccer practice. Anyway, so we said to them, like, here's what you can do with this thing. You're allowed to do this. And here are the things you can't do this. And they're 10 and 12. So they're not going to be very good at staying within those boundaries. But it, it turns out like boundaries are very freeing. And this is absolutely like spiritual because we're teaching them stewardship. This phone is not yours. It's mine. I bought it. I paid for it. I own it. You can use it and you can, you can rearrange your icons. You can set up your home screen. Like you can do whatever you want within it, within these boundaries. But there are some things you can't do. You can't download apps without asking me because it literally won't let you, right? And I don't trust you because you're 10 to be able to do that with, right? Like it's, not, I don't think you're a bad person, but you are a 10 year old person. So you're going to have to come to dad when it comes to being able to do this. And especially for adults that can feel very restrictive, but what's happening for our girls is they know, like they've gotten into a habit. They know what they can do. They know what's allowed. They know what's not. And so our, our hope is that as they grow up, Having grown up with boundaries, when the restrictions are pulled off, the boundaries will stay. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I think it, it, it's all about being thoughtful with technology. I think that people either demonize technology or they presume it's all good, and they're not very thoughtful in those spaces. So what you just described is, a, is two things. You described a thoughtful way of parenting instead of saying hey my kids are never going to touch technology well that 
is going to make them, you know, completely Amish in, in this society we live in. Or to say, well, I'm going to hand them an iPhone. There's nothing I can do. Wash my hands of this thing. Good luck. I hope my kids aren't surfing for porn. Right. right? So what it is, is being thoughtful. And then you described even being thoughtful in your own spiritual practices, you know, using the Echo Bible Act. Think about how often in your life people will come up and say, I've got this going on. And you say, well, I'll pray for you. And you're a liar. You don't have any intention of praying for them. Or if you do, you're not going to remember. I pull out the Echo Bible app and I type in, like, I say, oh, when is your surgery? And they say nine o'clock on Tuesday. So I put it in the Echo Bible app. And and you don't think you need an app for that. You could just use reminders, but it just, it's a specific thing. And when it pops up, you go, oh, I got to pray. And I use dwell to listen to the Bible. And th- I'm doing this thing right now. It's crazy. It's 90 days through the whole Bible by listening to it. And it's an hour a day. But if you do it at double speed, which I do, just like podcasts, I can do it in a half hour a day. And I have not been as diligent as you. So my 90 days will be about 110 days. But just this morning, I listened to Job. I listened to almost the entire book of Job this morning while I was eating breakfast and drinking my morning coffee. I just listened to the Bible. It's about being intentional and purposeful and thoughtful with technology and instead of just being afraid of it or just assuming it's altruistically good. Yeah, I totally agree. And what I love about technology is that being intentional means deciding something for yourself, right? And then behaving accordingly. And the great thing is technology can actually help you do that, right? If you're people, we don't think we like the feeling of something telling us what to do. But again, I just go back to, no, you tell you what to do and then find a something because ultimately you shouldn't need that anymore. But like our, my dog and I go for a walk. I'm so thankful that I have to walk my oldest daughter to the bus. And it's about maybe a half mile that she has to walk every morning at seven o'clock because I really wanted to walk. Like I needed to walk. Right. But it was not in a habit for me, but because my daughter had to go to the bus stop and we didn't really want her standing along Kreitz road by herself waiting for the bus, the dog and I go for a walk every morning with her. Well, guess what? On Saturday and Sunday, my daughter doesn't have to get on the bus, but the dog and I still went for a walk because it's now becoming a habit and it was a habit I needed. Nobody's telling me I have to go for a walk. Well, my doctor probably thinks I should go for a walk, but nobody else was telling me to go for a walk. (laughs) I was telling me to go for a walk, but the fact that there was a reason for me to go for a walk for multiple days in a row helped me to develop that as a habit. The same thing is true, I think, for technology. Use the app, you know, pause or use self-control not to be restrictive, but to help you build a habit because the goal is to like get past that. You can now make those decisions. You've grown up. You're no longer a 10-year-old girl. You're able to make decisions on your own as a human and, and to treat it as not just the thing, but the tool, right? Like not just the destination, but, but the tool that can help enrich your life by creating connections, not being the, like we should use our phones to be connected to each other. We shouldn't just be connected to our phone. Well, Jason and I could talk about this forever. In fact, we did. I had to edit it down to a manageable little podcast for us, but that's it. That's all we're going to do today. So thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please, of course, share it with all your friends, including your mom, and uh, like, subscribe, and all that stuff. And we'll be back uh, with another topic and another guest in two weeks.